Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, June 20th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A. Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December of 2018, we have brought to you over 115 poets from 13 countries on five continents, and we hope to continue to do so with your support. And you can do that by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate via either PayPal or your preferred credit cards. Today's episode features my conversation with Blues Black, with whom we discuss his poem, The Promised Land, and my poem, Self-Destructive. Before we get into that, however, I am going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of June 21st. On Monday, June 21st, from 8.30 p.m. Amsterdam time, Labyrinth will be hosting its weekly open mic, and you can find out more information at labyrinthamsterdam.nl forward slash pound sign events. Again, that's labyrinthamsterdam.nl forward slash pound sign events. From 8 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting Poets Playground We Play Clean open mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's poets underscore playground underscore. On Tuesday, June 22nd, from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting its first draft open mic for those between the ages of 13 and 23. It's a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. You can find out more information and register at urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. Again, that's urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. From 9 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground We Play Dirty open mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's poets underscore playground underscore. On Wednesday, June 23rd, from 6 p.m. Amsterdam time, Word Up Amsterdam will be hosting their Inspiration Factory writing workshop by Janice. You can find out more information and register at wordupamsterdam.weebly.com forward slash workshops.html. Again, that's wordupamsterdam.weebly.com forward slash workshops.html. From 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Do More Baltimore will be hosting their World Tour Poetry Club. You can find out more information at domorebaltimore.org forward slash workshops events. Again, that's domorebaltimore.org forward slash workshops events. Do is spelled D-E-W. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the Hudson Valley Writers Center will be hosting an evening with Sumita Chakraborty, Courtney Lamar Charleston, and Carrie Salerno. You can find out more information at writerscenter.org forward slash calendar. Again, that's writerscenter.org forward slash calendar. From 8 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, 
beyond Baroque literary arts, will be hosting their poetry workshop with Louis Vet Resto. You can find out more information at beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops.html. Again, that's beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops.html. On Thursday, June 24th, from 7 to 9 p.m. Central Daylight Time, True Art Speaks will be hosting their Reverb Open Mic hosted by Lieutenant Suni. You can find out more information at trueartspeaks.org forward slash events. Again, that's at trueartspeaks.org forward slash events. True is spelled T-R-U. On Friday, June 25th, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their Speak Your Truth writing workshop. You can find out more information by messaging the host, Andrina Leanne, via Instagram at survivor.andrina.leanne. Andrina is spelled A-N-D-R-E-E-N-A. Leanne is spelled L-E-E-A-N-N-E. From 7 p.m. West Africa time, Graciano and Worm and Nopal Flower will be hosting their Coronaverses open mic via Instagram Live at Graciano and Worm. That's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. Again, that's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. On Saturday, June 26th, from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Indian Standard Time, our past poet guest Umesh Mohikar will be hosting his weekly Let's Unmesh Life open mic. You can find out more information at Let's Unmesh Life on Instagram. Again, that's at Let's Unmesh Life on Instagram. From noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the Poetry Passport will be hosting their Writer's Workshop with the theme of Identity. You can find out more information about that at The Poetry Passport on Instagram. Again, that's at The Poetry Passport on Instagram. From 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, The Root Slam will be hosting their virtual writing workshop for writers 18 plus only. You can find out more information at rootslam.org forward slash calendar. Again, that's at rootslam.org org forward slash calendar. From 6 to 8.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, Equality Arizona and the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing will be hosting their Queer Poetry Salon, this time featuring Jada Renee, Manny Lowley, and Richard Syken. You can find out more information at piper.asu.edu forward slash events. Again, that's at piper.asu.edu forward slash events. From 7.30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, the Poetry Center San Jose will be hosting their Bochar, a theme-based monthly literary reading series in Hindi, hosted by Anshu Jori and Papi Carnalia. You can find out more information at pcsj.org. Again, that's at pcsj.org. On Sunday, June 27th, from 6 p.m. British time, 
Run Your Tongue will be hosting their spoken word open mic night. And you can find out more information and register at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 229-895-158-633-242. Again, that's 229-895-158-633-242. From 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Pure Ink Poetry, hosted by our past poet guest Brandon Williamson, will be hosting their monthly poetry slam, although this one might be in person. You can find out more information at pureinkpoetry.com. Again, that's at pureinkpoetry.com. At 2 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, the Claremont Library will be hosting their fourth Sundays with Romaine Washington and Anna Leahy. You can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 112-231-120-158-3588. Again, that's at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 112-231-120-158-3588. From 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Keep the Mic On will be hosting their weekly event, and you can find out more information at keepthemicon.com. Again, that's at keepthemicon.com. And now let's turn to our guest of the week, Blues Black. Hi, Blues. Thanks for coming on the show. No problem. You brought us the Promised Land to lead. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself before you read that? Uh, no, I'm a 60-something, born and raised on the East Coast, both in the South and the North, uh, both in segregated communities and integrated communities. Mm-hmm. After you know, uh, finishing the high school in New Jersey, mm-hmm. I decided to uh, go away to school. I had worked on high school and accumulated uh, some funds because my parents, I saw that they weren't going to be able to uh, pay the cost of college and I had an ambition to, to go to college. So I worked a junior and senior year of my high school okay. uh, years to uh, accumulate enough capital to, uh, to go to college. And I went away to the state of Maine for a year, to the state of Wisconsin for, I can't recall either two or at least two, maybe three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I returned to New Jersey and I finished school at uh, Rutgers University, okay. New Brunswick in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Professionally, I've done a lot of things, mainly in the social service and teaching fields. I did that for uh, till my mid-30s, and then I started doing industrial work. Mm-hmm. I did industrial work for the next 25 years. Wow. Sometimes I switched back and forth to uh, teaching uh, high school and doing industrial work. But in the main for last, from my mid-30s until now, mm-hmm. I've been doing that industrial work. So I've been writing poetry for a long time and reading poetry for, for, for a long time. And what um, brought you to poetry? I think a teacher in the fourth grade gave me some poems to read. Then in high school, I read quite a bit more. I always thought poetry was a, no, all literature, not all art, basically. Mm -hmm. 
is a uh, very appropriate and very powerful mechanism for talking about the experience of life in the human condition. Yes. Okay, so that's basically what brought me to, to poetry. Especially, I like the form of poetry because I've often said this to people. One can write a novel in a one-page poem. Mm, yeah. That's why I like I like the medium. Uh, I also like novels, too, but... I think you can you can say a whole lot and very you know, briefly. And I think that's powerful these days because I know my attention span <laughs> isn't that great. <laughs> <laughs> and from based on experience, I know other people's attention span <laughs> isn't, isn't that great either. So yeah. if you can do something that they can read within you know, 10 to 15 minutes, that works. Mm. Or perhaps even shorter than that. So. Mm. Well. Mm. Yeah, and it stays with you. Right, all right. Okay, great. So would you like to read The Promised Land to us now? Yes, I'll read The Promised Land. Grandfather paced about the 300-year-old house, looking, behaving like a junkyard dog with rabies, while mother and granny simply sat, weeping as if they were deeply wounded lovers. When Danny unlocked his, and only his, chest, hauled out his guns, we children knew it would be an unlaughing day. That day will always remain crystal clear, even in my rapidly declining mind. The Apollo of American nonviolence was gone. American truth, American justice, the American way, simply America, as always, merely being itself. What's going to happen to us, Mommy? You ain't going outside today. After he was gone, after he could no longer hurt the American way of life, America embraced him, disfigured him, distorted him, made him a damn American hero only after he was gone. I took to the no-one road of distrusting everything mommy and daddy in America embrace. MX became my guy. And who in America really knows studies MX? Who in America celebrates MX? I may not get there with you, but we, 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 we will get to the promised land. He had told all who would listen, is this the promised land? He had carried a slew of I have a dream dreams as he stoned about this severely low learning land. Then we took that long, teary walk behind him, somehow holding on to centuries of unrealized and seemingly unrealistic dreams. Fifty years done come and gone. My runaway slave youth, my freedom-seeking, trouble-making, street-fighting prime, and now these always and forever on the run gray years. Are we there yet? Is this the promised land?
Thank you for reading that. Not a problem. Can you tell us a little bit about the poem, such as your inspiration for it? I think I told you this. I was going through some boxes for some reason. I can't remember why I was going through some boxes that no, I have in the house. I came across a number of boxes with old poems in it. Mm-hmm. And this particular poem was in it. And it was written probably 15 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. I say all that to say that to say that I don't know what inspired it. <laughs> I was motivated it. But obviously it has something to do with where we are as a society and as a country, no, right now. And it hasn't changed much in 15 or 20 years either. The inspiration for it is the time period from that period of the 60s when King was active and then assassinated. And then... More recent times, has there been fundamental change, true progress? I think that's the questions that are that have been being asked because you know, King had this vision of the promised land where, you know, a person wasn't going to be be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. <laughs> there was a lot of hope in the 1960s that American society would transform itself from what it was into something entirely different. You know, a lot of people had a lot of dreams and hopes. And now, as we, or I in particular, look back and examine things, mm-hmm. uh, that question begs, one, what has changed, how it has changed, and has this dream been realized? Has this dream been achieved? If mm-hmm. so, why? If not, why? Mm-hmm. A lot of my poems raise questions mm-hmm. that I want others to consider. Mm-hmm. Whether they consider them or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. they do, sometimes. I know some of them do because they tell me about it. Right. But in terms of the wider audience, I'm not entirely sure because I, I, and I say, say that because one, although I know many people at these poetry readings around uh, the city of Phoenix, where I read at, mm-hmm. very seldom do these people that I know, that I've known for a long time, mm-hmm. express any reaction. <laughs> and this is pretty provocative stuff that I'm reading. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know where, where their heads are. I don't know if I do this anymore, but I had, when I first started reading poetry in the city of Phoenix, mm-hmm. one of my goals was because uh, this was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. One of my goals was, in my mind, was to go into the belly of the beast. And by that, I mean predominantly Anglo-American audiences, mm-hmm. okay, and talk about American history, mm-hmm. which includes standard American history, traditional, conventional American history, then the history of others, including you know, African Americans, Native Americans, Latino Americans, Okay, because I concluded from conversations with many people that still that that element that uh, Ralph Ellison talked about, the visible man, mm-hmm. was still present. Meaning that people of color was not visible right. in their lives <laughs> in no shape, way, before. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there does seem to be not only a segregation, physical segregation, but a mental segregation. It's a psychological segregation. Yeah. Even so now, because as quietly as as it is kept due to the fact that racial segregation sometimes still exists, it's not as intense Mm. as it once was, but what we have more so now is the economic segregation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is also tied to racial. Exactly. 
Yeah, exactly. So these most most of these communities, especially the middle, upper middle, and upper class communities, now you don't get a significant just from a numerical standpoint number of people of color. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then those ones that tend to be there, and this is obviously an opinion. Many of them, if not the overwhelming majority, have had experience where they have been. I want to say this: they had the experience of living predominantly in the white world mm -hmm. all of their lives. That's not to say all of them have done that. Obviously, all of them, those people haven't. But many of them grew up in predominantly white neighborhoods, went to predominantly white you know, secondary schools, did predominantly white colleges, and mm -hmm. work, now they're in predominantly white workplaces. So in, in a sense, and I found those type of people, they don't want to rock the boat. Mm -hmm. They have something to protect. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they, I mean, some, obviously there's exceptions to everything. Mm -hmm. But the, the ones that know, many of the ones that I know, uh, and I can speak most authoritatively about African-Americans, the ones that, that I know, they just want to fit in. They would not challenge any attitudes, any assumptions, any beliefs of their surroundings. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there are probably many reasons for that. Because what you find is many middle African-Americans, and they're not, this isn't you know, unique to them within the African-American community. But they have adopted mainstream American values. Mm. Okay. And in their experience, like I said, going to predominantly white schools and white universities and so forth, they know very little about other than their personal experience, which one cannot discount. And I wouldn't judge their personal experience. I don't, who knows about somebody else's you know, personal experience completely. Nobody does. Mm -hmm. But uh, they accept what the culture and the society feeds them. For example, and I have done this experiment. I have asked people to name five most historically significant African Americans of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. The first thing people comes up people's mind is Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't even make my top ten. Mm -hmm. First and fundamentally, just based on longevity, mm -hmm. he was on the scene from. 55 till he was assassinated in 68. Yeah, these other people who were on the scene, like the boys, since the beginning of the century <laughs> until the 1960s, and many others. Okay, the other thing is Martin Luther King really didn't originate most of what he was involved with, most of what people you know, associate him with, like the Montgomery bus boycott. He came in later. Okay, he was selected later to be their spokesperson. Why was he selected? Because he spoke the language white people understood. He was universally trained. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he could speak their language. And most people don't even realize the March of Washington wasn't even his idea. Okay, that was A. Philip Randolph's idea. And A. Philip Randolph had been involved on the scene since the 1920s. Mm -hmm. But this is what the propaganda that America puts out about Martin Luther King, that he was the beginning and the end of the civil rights movement. <laughs> and believe me, most people still think that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why you know, I'm very passionate about it, because it's just incorrect history. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of simplification. Right, a lot of simplification. It was my quest, not only that, but just the whole range of activities that have gone on in Americans, American uh, history over the centuries. Knowing that most people were unaware of it, and for many people, the source of their information is what I call Hollywood history. <laughs> From movies that I put, put out for Hollywood, these Hollywood movies, they are designed to be history. Right. They're entertainment. Right. Okay, so they may have 
a base or kernel of truth to whatever the story that they're purporting to tell. But they aren't going on, you know, history. Right. Okay, it's a rewriting of history, it's a dramatization of history. And, so, and these people make these movies say that. But people perceive them as the holy word. Right. Well, because there are two hours, as you said, attention span has shortened. It's much easier to consume a two-hour movie that, you know, entertains you via, you know, sight and sound and and all that than reading a book, uh, especially history books sometimes uh, that can be dry in in an academic setting. Entertainment industry does cater to our... um, Worst habits. (laughs) Yes. But the other thing is, and I think it's encouraged by the culture. You probably know this. Americans have an international reputation as being a historical (laughs) compared to other places. I perhaps wouldn't go this far, but I've heard from other people. And reactions, assumptions that other people make is that Americans are dumb. Mm-hmm. Okay. We just have a bad education Okay. System. Yeah, you see, but that the education system is a reflection of the culture. Mm-hmm. So you can't take that in isolation. Because mm-hmm. there's a reason why the education system is as it is. Well, part of it is also we have two layers, well, several layers of government. There's always a fighting between the states and the federal government. And there's no one particular education system. Every state sets their standards. And according to each state's history, they tend to look at American history in certain, from different perspectives. Right, I mean, they, they want American history to be you know, glorious and celebrated and all one big you know, line of progress. So they don't talk about what I call the underbelly of American history. I have no problem with people being proud of the American War for in, independence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, but the whole picture is distorted. Well, it is in keeping with what you said. It's part of the culture. Our movies tend to be, you know, everything would turn out to be all right at the end. No matter what horrible subject, you know, it takes on at the end of the movie, everything's fine. Somebody will come and save the day. And even this persona, MLK persona, is that he is the hero. And and every every superhero movie is one person. This Avengers thing is actually somewhat new, you know, they're teaming mm-hmm. up, but mostly it's about one person. It's very it's very much what's stated on the one dollar bill, you know, you pluribus unum. Right. One person will come and save. Well that fits right in with our whole the, the, our culture's whole stress on individualism. Mm-hmm. Which I personally, I like it. I do think we should strike balance. The irony is I don't think our culture actually appreciate individualism. No, they don't. It's a very conformist culture. Yes. (laughs) The individualism thing flows down from the elites. Mm. That's their concept of America, that uh, we have freedom. We're not like other societies. And I won't call them... Communist or socialism because that's an inappropriate term for them because it's not correct. The Soviet Union was not a communist society. China is is not a communist society. Uh, Cuba is not a communist society. But the other thing about this whole discussion is that all cultures and all nations are based on myths. Mm. So all American history, one, is geared to what some people describe as the dominant culture. And two, it's all a myth. And that dude wrote that book, The Art and the History of America, or The Other History of America, or something of that sort, when he points out that, one, uh, and it begins in Columbus. How can you discover some place where somebody's already there? Right, right. <laughs> and then this whole 
saying about manifest destiny and, you know, but they don't talk about the brutality that went along with the expansion of Europeans from the East Coast to the West Coast. Mm -hmm. The theft of land from Native Americans. Mm -hmm. Okay, the destruction of Native American cultures. Okay, just, 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 I mean, just the sheer, you know, brutality of the whole situation. It's totally erased, totally erased from the American consciousness. And then you have the slavery thing, stealing it, Africans from Africa, bringing them over here, and then the whole economic argument, you know, involved, involved with, with that. And then wanting to sanitize it. That's what they were geared to do. That's all they are capable of doing. The inferior. We're taking care of them. The whole matrix of racism, which came out of that labor thing. So it was my goal when I first started reading around, around Phoenix to whack people over the head with this. Mm-hmm. That you need to, to hear about this. You shouldn't be going around with these fuzzy, rosy notions in your head mm-hmm. about what a great, great, great country, great society this is. Mm-hmm. Even if you try to whack them over the head, well, and there's some issues with that, because nobody wants to be whacked over the head. No. Nah. Okay. Uh, people get defensive. Okay. See, but that's necessary. Why are they getting defensive? It's like a human behavioral thing. Not, not, not necessarily because they have any sort of evil intent or anything. It's just that people, behaviorally speaking, psychologically speaking, people will, <coughs> will be more open to your anyone's ideas that are different from theirs if they were asked to thought about I might disagree with you on, on, on that point. Especially here, on a deep psychological level, and this probably applies to all cultures and so forth, oppressors and explorers psychologically don't want to deal with their investment in that oppression and exploiting. I agree with that. At the same time, what I'm saying is... And they have closed minds about it. That's what we have a review about. I mean, if you get an open mind, okay, like when women talk to me, about misogyny. I don't mean they shut it off become defensive about man. Yeah, but that's you individually. What right. I'm saying is behaviorally speaking as a species, human beings, period. It's easier to convince somebody of what they don't believe. Okay. You know, that's why in this poem... But as I was saying, people would tend to be more open to your opinion on things, especially if they don't agree with you, if you question them, let them think of the answers. Okay. This is more more from a psychological behavioral uh, okay. point of view. I'm not talking about you see, that, moral that, or ethical. Okay. That bothers me, and I'll tell you why that bothers me. And I'm not saying it's not true. Because okay? it's probably true since day one, right? Since the advent of the human species. Right. Okay, see, and what that's, that bothers me. I'll tell you why. So since the advent of human species, this... Behavior trait has been present. So, you now we've been walking around and so forth for how many years? 200,000. 200,000. We haven't learned anything different? Well, you know... You see, that's why this poem... That, I, I, actually, uh, I, I would say the same argument for, for misogyny, right? And it's correct. Gender that's equality. That's perfect. That's we've been around, you know, that's women... Perfect. You're are, right. You know, them pop into the world. You're right. So, and you're right. Right. So what I'm saying, though, is not a defense of how people behave. What I'm saying is a description. As a reality out there is what you said. <laughs> yeah. I, I, get what, I get what you said, but I'm saying what that tells me, and that's why I put this in, the, in this in this poem this severely slow learning land it's it's true we we are you know and that's a shame you know i'm sorry to hijack this conversation with this but earthlings i call them earthlings and i'm not from earth by the way (laughs) (laughs) no earthlings 
It's a tragedy that we are a, a, such slow learners. We are, and part of it is due to our culture of celebrating this exceptionality. But we're supposed to be independent thinkers, individuals, right? Yeah, but we haven't, I don't think we've geared our education system to raise independent thinkers, really. We've uh, geared our education system towards... To support the culture values as conformity and as vocation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, certain classes of people do get different kind of education, different inroads into education, and... This is true. I mean, there's always exception to it. Yeah, but the tendency is to not think for ourselves, but to cram a lot of knowledge in and to think in certain ways, depending on the school that you go to. So that that is a sad reality (coughs) for our culture. And because our culture celebrates this American exceptionalism, it makes it even harder to look within ourselves and look at all the things that we've done that's not that have not been exceptional. Right. You know, don't think about this about conceptualism, okay? That, that, and I know it's just by habit to say our culture. That exceptionalism, no, BS, that's the myth that the elites put out there. That's a, the, the sole concept of exceptionalism, okay? Is these, you know, boneheaded, ethnocentric, elite university, you know, so-called thinkers put out there. Trace the root of that concept, where it comes from, mm-hmm. and who put it out there. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you, that's it. Don't believe me. Do the history on American I, I don't think we're arguing this point. No, we're not. I think we're, we're very much in agreement right. that this is this is what's tripping us up in terms of admitting that we have done so much wrong within our own history, and that's why we are in the place that we are. Um, why we're such slow learners, as you mentioned in your poem. Going back to your poem, I wanted to understand some specifics because you have mentioned for in the first line, you said, grandfather paced about the 300-year-old house. This is talking about your actual, your grandparents' house. Is this, or is it a metaphorical? That's a metaphorical. Okay. 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 And that represents, you know, the 300 years of oppression. Mm-hmm of exploitation that we're trying to get out of and reach that promised land. Mm-hmm. We're trapped in this nightmare for 300 years mm-hmm. and all of a sudden there's an opportunity seen that you can get out of it and get to that promised land. Mm-hmm. I grew up in North Virginia, okay, the house that I'm speaking of, it was probably about 100 years old. I mean, didn't have, this was in the 1960s. There was no central heating we had a mm-hmm. fireplace and wood stove. Right. There was no air conditioning, none of that stuff. There was a whole house. And it's the, the whole first part speaks to how disruptive that event, the King assassination, was for most black people. Yeah, I mean, you expressed that fear, I think, um, you know, when you talked about Daddy... Uh, when he took out his gun from the chest and also when uh, the mommy character answered you ain't going outside today you know there's very much that fear and anticipation of what might happen to the rest of the people now that this shining symbol that was accepted by white society have been assassinated Mm -hmm. it's like the floodgates have been breached Right. That idea. Right. So the fear is definitely there in, in your poetry. And also the, the the other side of that is the fear of what we knew was going to happen. Which was? And to put it in street language, 
Because I think this is the most appropriate language to put it in. Okay. Niggas was going to tear up shit. Mm. You have no... The brothers on the street, okay. We know y'all not going to deal with us because we want to fuck up shit anyway because we just mad and we're not going to speak all this rosy language like King does. Mm-hmm. Okay. But King is trying to get along with y'all, trying to work with y'all. Let's go. And he's telling us, no, we don't need to be violent and so forth and so on. Okay. All right. So we're we going to go with him. Well, we'll see what he's going to do. And then his assassination comes. And there was just, I don't know if you remember after King's assassination, people rioted for weeks. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. People, people tore up shit <laughs> and burned shit for weeks. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It was a very bad time. Mm-hmm. Okay, there was that type of anger within certain segments of the African American community. Right. So, oh, because so, there was a, in in some way, was, there was an unspoken trust that was violated. Yes. Because in having King as a symbol, it's almost as if the African American community had extended an olive branch. This is true. At that olive branch had been taken away and right. burned, basically. Right. This is this so, is true. That purely after King's assassination was similar to in the state of Mississippi after Emmett Till, mm-hmm. of the Emmett Till situation. That right. people didn't let the kids go outside because they didn't know what was going to happen to them. Right. So this was similar to that. Even with the stuff now, the Trayvon Martin and, and the certain yeah. stuff going on, I mean, that fear that you talk about is there is that, you know, and the Black Lives Matter movie came out of this. We don't know what's going to happen to our kids when we let them out. Right, right. So we got to be very, 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 very protective of them because, you know, the language has changed since back in the 60s and so forth. I mean, you got this implicit bias and intersectionality and all these fancy words these days. <laughs> but uh, the human condition remains the same, so to speak, right. in that respect. Yeah. I mean, you got even black middle-class people. I mean, I don't know how this how this got out. This whole talk about the talk. Um, sorry. Let me put it this way. There's some distortion about this whole concept of talk within the wider culture. They talk about it as if it's something widespread within the African community, when in fact, still in my analysis, and I did research into it, and my experience is a African-American middle-class thing. But the talk is that that you sit down, you're a young man when they get about 10, 12, 13, and you tell them about the dangers in the wider society. Mm. Okay. And why I say, one, uh, based on my experience and research that's a middle-class uh, phenomenon, is that when you're growing up in whatever you want to term slums, ghettos, low-income areas, fear of authority, especially the police, is just in the air. One, because you have brothers, uncles, friends, cousins, we have experienced it. Right. So let's talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then when you reach a certain level, I mean you kids perceive what's going on around it. Right. Okay. They might see somebody please beat up somebody. Okay. So they don't need to have a talk. They are inherently aware of the dangers in the wider society. Right. Okay. But people start talking about this phenomenon of talking they and I've been in sessions with them and they talk about it, both black and white people, as if it's someone that's new to and that it's a rise, widespread phenomenon within the African American community. People started talking about it when I think uh there was some segments on Oprah <laughs> and stuff <laughs> like that. Right. About then Obama said he asked the trip all money and had to talk with uh, people started to for me it's just something that's always bad. Yeah, but it, but but it reflects just a simple lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Because this was really grabbed on by, by white people, as progressive white people. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the simple lack of really knowledge about African American culture. Well, yeah, and there isn't one African American culture. There's many. Yeah. Just like any other 
There's no monolith. People that right. you know, people who aren't insightful. Yeah. Okay, it's like there's a you know, there's a monolithic culture of, of whatever. And right. of course and there, there is isn't. There yeah. is. It cuts yeah. it cuts across many social oh, groupings. Yeah. 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 Economic groupings as well. I mean, there are definitely things that middle or higher class uh, African Americans do not have to deal with that lower income African Americans do have to deal with, and in that, uh, ironically, they have a lot in common with lower low income whites. Oh, definitely, definitely, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Which is which is probably why Bernie Sanders got so much support from both sides of the. Oh yeah. Because they're both economically disadvantaged communities. I mean, they they face similar things in in that aspect without without considering their skin color. Right, the racial element. Yeah, the racial element. And what you said about this not having the talk, but also just the fear of authority had always been there, and the slow learning process is why I chose the poem I did. I'm going to read that, and then we can talk about it. Self-destructive. A running roll call ever extending. Massacres stem from fatal encounters. Executions followed by exonerations. The news now comes in steel casings. To disguise an ingrained fear over melanin finely tuned to fit us for our ancestral homes as we spread to explore the world, now used to calibrate every excuse because we've never left the farm. Our memory faulty, we keep amending the meaning of reasonable doubt with a now encyclopedic list for stripping life from our fellow citizens and lash abuse upon the deceased. Bound by death, they can no longer resist. Though we rise up to say their names, seeing clearer with every injustice that what went awry has never been fixed, and that pigment continues to be leveraged by those seeking to dominate with minds, dogged by disproven eugenic prophecies, Spoon-fed in every bigoted social policy, hacking away at our common link in denial that we've been stealing from our own better future by divesting from our fellow brethren, thinking we're stopping a theft from shared coffers when we're robbing our lives of their brilliance, now buried in lead, insults, anguish, and tears, Banished before they can each shine from potential, because <coughs> fear prejudiced our eyes to only see danger, and forced into shape one form the countless myriad. It's a very powerful poem. Thank yeah. you. Very, very powerful poem. So, could you talk about where this came from for you? Yeah, I've been reading a lot over the years about the various fatal encounters that black men and women have had with the police. And in the recent <coughs> years, they seem to, especially during the Obama years, they seem to happen more and more frequently. I don't know if it's because they were happening more frequently as a backlash to the election or because suddenly there were more coverage about what was happening. But it was just something that we can't seem to get away from and it continues to this day, of course. I wrote this poem relatively recently, last year. You see, that's another thing about our history. Black Lives Matter and you know, all this activism since Trayvon Martin. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, that's when the Black Lives Matter came about and so forth. So, but what the police behavior is nothing new. Right. When I wrote this poem, I wasn't just thinking back to Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm. which was a very publicized mm-hmm. case in recent years. Good. But there's been the Abdul Diallo's, the Rodney Kings. It goes back decades. That you know. It goes back since the beginning of the time. Right. So, so right. You see, I, I raised that point because unfortunately, I'm glad to hear that you, know, you were aware of this. But a lot of these young people, they think, <laughs> they think in their mind. Okay, these progressive young people, both black and white, mm-hmm. that this stuff just started happening since Trayvon Martin. For me, I feel like maybe that is uh, just an outcropping of each generation's egotism, right? Because each generation tends to think that... Whatever is happening to them is new. Yeah, or not okay. so much new, but that this is the most important, this is the most catalytic you see, generation. You see, for me, that's one part of the slow learning thing and two, why this country and culture is definitely a problem. You cannot understand who you are until you understand who you were, mm-hmm. how you got to this point. Right. And um, you don't go into any type of future until you have an understanding of that. Right. Because we don't teach that. I wasn't taught this stuff. Right. Okay. I wasn't, I mean, I was taught some, I was introduced to some of these subjects. Mm-hmm. And then I took it to where I wanted it to go. Right. I'm the same way. I like to dig into subject matters. At the same time, a lot of people tend to want to escape all the uh, But the focus, the focus of our culture, one, is vocational. And people have written books about this. Entertain them to death. Mm-hmm. Keep them fat and laughing. And everything will be okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, and, uh, keep fat. And, and it pertains to, you know, all the various cultures in the United States. Keep them fat, happy, and comfortable. Hey, I'm good. Why should I care about anything? I'm good. Right. But uh, I like this this line of uh, Madeline finally tuned to fit us for our ancestral lands. Mm-hmm. I have a sort of a understanding of it in my higher process, but how did you come come to this line? Well, as I have mentioned in a previous episode, I like science, and I read about science a lot. Mm-hmm. So in my poetry, that comes through either covertly or overtly. This is somewhere in between that I'm talking about why we develop the skin colors we did, okay. why that's important, but that doesn't necessarily inform who we are, the rest of our characteristics. Right. Sort of right. going back to King's speech about the content of people's character right. rather than judging them by their skin color. I didn't understand this line because we never left the farm. That is a reference both to the plantation as well as to animal farm. Okay. In our memory faulty, we keep amending the meaning of reasonable doubt. Yeah, again, uh, the memory faulty is, is a reference back to animal farm as well because I forget which animal. Which the pig. Animal. <laughs> 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 would be would be very convenient coincidence, right? I, I feel like it was most of the animals that were having problems remembering the past. And in Orwell's mind, that was how people who cannot remember their history tends to repeat that. Mm. And that's the idea that I wanted to invoke, that we seem to forget what the treatment was and what the treatment continues to be because even though legally African Americans are free and there are so many circumstances under which they've been constrained. Mm-hmm. Now I've now looked at these situations, I tell you I've lived in various parts of the country and so forth and so on. 
And I encounter people, and I talk to people. I pretty much, be honest with you, you know, I'm old now. I'm tired. Mm-hmm. As I say, you know, 50 years and coming gone, you know, my runaway slave youth, meaning that after King died and other stuff, other stuff happened, that's when I really started, and I was only like 10 or 12. And I had inklings of this before, just based on the way we live, because I tell you, it was a segregated community. Mm-hmm. Something is seriously wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like something is very seriously wrong here. Mm-hmm. Okay, one, I'm explore to see, you know, what I can find out about it. Mm-hmm. Two, I'm not going to accept it. Right. And three, you know, I'm going to try to communicate it to to others. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to when I took to, and it's a no way road. Right, right. Because you're alienating yourself from the larger society. Right. And I don't know if you know if you know this. Other than race, African Americans is very conservative. Mm, well, yeah, I mean, other than, race, other than racial matters, African Americans are very conservative. And again, depends on the segment of the African American. No, no, no. I can disagree with you. I will argue with you about that. You have this one, this very slim intellectual slice of the African American community who claim to to be you know non conservative. But uh, other than that, I would venture to say, just off the top of my head, I would say that over ninety percent of American African American community, I would describe them as conventional and conservative, other than for racial matters. Okay, based on religion. Mm-hmm. Values, patriotism. Somebody once once said this: African Americans are get it straight because my memory has got to go on <laughs> me. Religious, individualistic, materialistic, and patriotic. The the core values within the African American community are those things. Mm-hmm. Okay, and even these guys, the purported radicals, I think, and mainly the intellectuals. Okay, there's some trade unionists and some workers. Mm-hmm. If you really look at, drill down and look at the values, what are they seeking? And generally speaking, it's not to transform the society. It's to get a seat at the table to get their piece of the pie as well as what they're really talking about. It's not that this is all messed up. We need to really look at how this thing is structured and how it's arranged, and we need to change that. No, it's not that we want, you know. That's why people are crazy about Obama. And Obama wasn't talking about transforming anything. No. Okay, it was like, our guy is in there now. That's why I say you have to go along with the program in order to be rewarded by the program. Mm-hmm. This guy, Amiri Baraka, mm-hmm. I knew him. He was one of my teachers, right? Okay. At Rutgers. Okay. This guy, brilliant man, got along well. But he had a problem. All of the books he read, all of the awards he won, all this stuff, he could never get tenure at university. Mm-hmm. They would never tenure him. Wow. And he couldn't understand why. And I told him this. I said, man, you can't go around running these people down, destroying them intellectually, calling them all types of names, and then you expect them to give you tenure? <laughs> <laughs> Like, what's wrong with you, man? Come on. Now, if you don't know, play the game, give it the program, you ain't getting tenure. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we're still all human beings driven by ego. And it's very, for somebody who's an intellectual, who we think of, I would just show my intellectuality and somebody will respect me for that rather than mm, his, his be petty about ego bruises. His argument was this. And this, I think it's somewhat true. We got these white guys who do the same stuff that he was doing. Mm-hmm. That they were getting tenure. Right. Almost um, like do they MIT, whatever, I forget his name. The linguist. By the way, there's a number of them. 
No, I need to eat in the first. But like you said, you know, if you can't even get to the table, then all you want is to wedge yourself in rather than cause or dismantle the table at that point. I mean, once you get to the table and actually be comfortable, then you can look at what's wrong with what's on the table, right? Yes, but in the process, what happens is once you get to the table, for the most part, for most people, then you're comfortable there. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you don't want to put that at risk. Well, yeah. I mean... Okay. So you're going to go so far right. in your challenge. And when they tell you, back the fuck off or you out of here. Mm-hmm. Okay. You... And I've seen that happen. Right. I've seen that a million times. Now, they'll let you go so far. Okay. They'll let you... Give you a little bit of rope. But once you step over that line... Okay, you're expendable. Right, so at the end of the day, we're still talking about racism in one form or another. Because basically they're saying, okay, we're going to tolerate this African-American so only so far because there is a ceiling to which, you know, we will tolerate as an African, in in this African-American category, we will tolerate only so much. But somebody mainstreaming, a.k.a. European-American, will be able to tolerate a lot more because they're, they're also they were more willing to fight because their seat at the table is secure. Yes. It's both sides of it. Yes. Right? Well, yeah, yeah. So, because they know many of them, and I've observed this over the, over, over the years, many leftist Anglo intellectuals. For them, it's just an intellectual game, it's an intellectual thing. They aren't willing to put their bodies on the line. Mm-hmm. And it brings prestige to certain universities that have them there. Okay, this, you know, uh, intellectual freedom thing, freedom of speech, and all, and all that type of stuff. And you see, the other thing is about this whole thing, about this, all of this, what we're talking about. I don't listen to what people say, I watch what they do. Right, okay. exactly. Okay? Because yes. anybody can say anything and they can get away with saying anything to certain people. But I watch what they do. These blah, blah, blah is very easy. Yes. <laughs> so you got these people, they live in these, you know, these Hollywood lectures, you know, they live in these economically segregated communities. Mm-hmm. Okay, when they're running down the system intellectually, I say it's all messed up and so forth and so on, but all they're doing is reproducing the same system. Right, right. Okay, they send their kids to private schools. They don't mix them up with those, you know, crazy-ass public school kids. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, they send them to universities and law school or whatever, even though they're claiming that, you know, they, they, they want major transformation of the system. They're replicating it privately. So it's, yeah. they're complicit in many ways. Oh, yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. sometimes... Sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's not. The fact is, when it comes down to it, people want to take care of their own needs. And and there's always that that impedes certain fundamental change. Yeah, that's you see you see you say you say people okay want to take care of their own needs. See the only, how do you get out of that trap? How do you get out of the trap? Not needs but only needs and wants. Because we are uh, generally speaking okay it's, it's just like your basic survivalist needs. We want status. We want prestige. Right. We want, you know, uh, to have uh, the best of the best. Right. How do you get out of that trap? Because what happens is, and the, this was happening to the black middle class, you know, now you have a stake in the system because you got shit you need to protect. Mm-hmm. And that whole value system and all your material stuff, you don't own that. You follow me? Right. You, don't, you know why I say you don't own that? Those people don't own that stuff? Because that stuff owns Right. Their behavior is based on the protection of their stuff. Yeah. 
Okay. So that again goes back to human psychology in that once you have something, you want, even, to, want to keep it. Yeah, but we view losing something we have, even if it's something useless, a trinket that lays in the corner of your house, wherever, right. never been used, gathering dust. Somebody takes that. Yeah, we all upset about it. Yes, yes, we, we really we view loss as something much more detrimental than we view gain. It's something like three to one. Loss is three times more important to us than gain. And we all feel this. In putting race in such an importance, we forget to deal with all the other human foibles. All of these movements go to different phases. And I think a lot of these movements get stuck for various reasons. And it's difficult. Like I said before, this culture has messed up all of us. And, they, and nobody is immune. No, it's true. You're not immune, and I'm no. not immune either. No. Oh. Okay. I mean, we okay. all want to do something. Okay, okay. No, but no, <laughs> no, no. I'm, just, I'm talking about the deeper stuff too. Now I'm just a decent night with just the deeper, you no know, psychological stuff that we may or may not be aware of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can we move on from values and concepts that one either the culture imposes on us, two whether we adopt them and then we never examine them anymore? <laughs> that sort of thing. Thank you very much for coming onto the show. How can our listeners follow you? Is there any way? I know you're not on social media. If they really are intent, they can find me around for humanitarian reasons. Mm-hmm. I don't use electronics. There's some very serious humanitarian issues related to yes. electronics. Modern slavery. Right. Yes. Yeah. All throughout so, the supply chain. Right. Yes. So I don't, I don't know. I can't be with that. Right. Right. I understand. Um, that's very kind of you. Okay, well, again. Uh, yeah, I'm around town. So if people want to find me, they'll find me. Yes. Around town. Yes. Thank you very much again for your time. I really appreciate this, Bruce. Thank you for the, uh, giving me the opportunity to express myself. Of course. Appreciate that. Thanks. For those of you who are not familiar with Amari Baraka, he was a poet and author and the father of the current mayor of Newark, New Jersey, Ras Baraka. In the interest of fact-checking my own statements, I had said that Homo sapiens have been around for 200,000 years. That's according to a Wikipedia page, which cited multiple sources, including the National Science Foundation. At the same time, those sources were all dated in the aughts, Whereas in the latest article that I found from the Encyclopedia Britannica, Homo sapiens are said to have been around for 315,000 years. I will post a link to this article in our episode notes. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.